celebrated our nation's independence. And it seems fitting to me every time we go through this to connect the dots. And hopefully this today will be helpful and not a distraction. I avoided it last week because I didn't want to be a distraction. But hopefully we will understand where I'm going with this. The, the signers of the Declaration, as representatives of the nation at large, not universally, but with consensus, put their endorsement on a document that declared us to be independent of our mother country, England. But not simply because we were oppressed, that was certainly a factor, but because we believed that there were certain values that were absolutely immutable that we believed were good and right and true. Now, one thing that I've learned in my lifetime as my hair has turned gray and departed my company, I've learned that values that we declare are often more aspirational than actual. Very often I can see things that I believe in, that I believe are good and right and true, and yet I fail to live up to them. Our nation is no exception. We know, we are not foolish, we're not naive, we know that the United States of America, this grand experiment, has not always been perfect, and in many cases not even good. And yet, we still hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men and women are created equal. And all of us, because we are created, are created by a creator. We believe, regardless of, of uh, the differences in opinion, the differences in religious beliefs, and so on, our nation was founded on the belief that all human beings have intrinsic value equally because we were created by a creator who endued us with certain unalienable rights. Now, the rights themselves are of consequence to that declaration, but they're not of consequence to our point today. What we need to understand is that all people are created equally in God's image. There is no human being ever born, ever created by God that does not bear the image of God, no matter how distorted that image might be, how tainted by sin. No matter how much the world or even our own selves might see us as outcasts and irredeemable, God, who is the only one who has the right to declare us such, says, while you may be an outsider on your own merits, I love you. And that same God is the one that Jesus described in John 3.16 as loving the world, not the, the cosmos and the system of, of belief, but us, the people of the world, so much that he gave his one and only son 
Jesus himself. So that whoever believes in him might not perish, but would have eternal, everlasting, forever life in unity with him. Now that's significant because the reality of it is every single one of us, every single one of us is terminal. All of us have a disease that will kill us. There is no escape. That disease is not cancer in our physical bodies. That disease is the cancer of our souls, sin. And no one, no one lives without that cancer in us. It manifests itself in many ways. And as we look at how God walked his people Israel through a reacquaintance with him. Why would I say a reacquaintance? Because we were created in perfect unity and intimacy with God back in the garden. As a human race, which incidentally is the only race ever mentioned in the Bible. There is one race, the race of man. And as God created us to be with him in that perfect union and intimacy, all of us in Adam fell when sin entered the equation. Every single one of us. And so at that point, we as human lost the knowledge of God. There is in us an innate desire to know God. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity in our hearts, even though we can't comprehend what God is doing from beginning to end. But it's in us. All of us long for that significance. We long for the things that were lost when we, in our original creation, were spiritually alive as well as physically alive. Then sin entered, and while we remained physically alive, that's why you're listening to me, because if you were physically dead, you wouldn't be paying much attention but spiritually dead because of sin. That's the state all of us are born in. All of us. There are no innocents. There are no people on this planet who are unstained, who are clean. I hope we get this. We are all equal in that we all were created with God's image in us and that we all share the stain of sin. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you were born on, what color your skin might be, what language you speak, what your nation of origin is, whether you are a criminal or a cop, whether you are an immigrant or a border patrol worker, whether you are a voter or a president, all of us are dead in sin until we are raised by the grace of God in Christ. Amen. This is important for us to recognize as we go into this. Because Luke is going to establish for us today in Luke chapter 5. In case you didn't know, that's where we're going. In Luke chapter 5, he's going to establish for us today a picture that will... He's already kind of pointed toward this. Now he's going to establish this picture very clearly, succinctly, but strongly... That will be a, a theme, a thread that runs through the rest of his gospel. We've mentioned before that probably the theme verse of this entire book is Luke 19.10. That the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
Today, he's going to do that very same thing. Luke writes this book so that we, through the, the uh, letter he's writing to his friend Theophilus, might be able to know the certainty of this faith that has been handed down to us. What we have been taught, we have to know ourselves. We have to own it for it to matter. And Luke wants to make sure that, that his friend Theophilus gets that, but in the beautiful sovereignty of God, his intent is also for it to be read among the churches. And God intended for us today to see the same thing. As he's going through this, he writes so that we would know the certainty of what we've been taught. And he establishes the identity of Christ in the first few chapters. That he is both fully God, not a little bit God, not a half God, not, you know, not like a Marvel superhero sort of God. But that he is God himself in the flesh and also fully human. He goes to great lengths to point this out. This becomes extremely important as we see Jesus face direct temptation by the enemy and to face it down with tools that are available to us as well. We see that at the beginning of chapter 4. And it becomes even more important when we get to the end of the story, which we will eventually, I promise, not today, when Jesus becomes our substitute and he takes all of the wretchedness, the uncleanness, the untouchable nature of our sin, and he bears that shame on himself on the cross in my place and yours. He can only do that because of who he is, because he is fully human and can represent us, and because he is fully God and has authority over both the physical and the spiritual realms. Peter gets to see that in the first part of chapter 5, and the fishermen with him, but Peter always the outspoken one, Jesus singles him out, takes his boat, instructs him to do something that's very unusual, sees a miraculous thing take place right there in his workplace, in his everyday. Jesus brings his everyday to Peter's everyday, and it's a lot like any other day. And Peter gets it, and he falls on his face at Jesus' knees, and he says, Lord, get away from me. I don't belong with you. I am a sinner. And Jesus says, Peter, Hey, man, there's no outsiders here. Don't be afraid. You're going to fish for men. We uh, don't see all of the story because Luke takes the pieces that he needs to be able to put together what he's doing. But Matthew and Mark and John record the other portions of it. And it appears that prior to this, despite the heading in your NIV Bible, prior to this, Jesus has already called his disciples, at least some of them, Peter and Andrew and his friends, James and John. So as, as he comes here, he's already said to him, I'm going to make you fishers of men if you follow me. <clears throat> now Peter sees it and Jesus says, don't be afraid. Let's get to work. In the second part of this chapter, as we move today into uh, verses 12 and following, we will see Jesus actually doing what he's told Peter that he will do. Jesus begins to fish for souls. He's been teaching in the synagogues, and not only in the synagogues, not just in the, in the church, so to speak, or in the sacred places, but he's teaching at the lakeside. He's teaching among the workplace or among the regular people. He's healing, 
He's driving out demons. But Jesus says, listen, <laughs> this is just to let you know that I'm not kidding around. The point is the message, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Turn to God. There's good news. And I'm here to proclaim it. Now, Jesus has become quite famous in this region. Everybody's talking about him. Everybody's saying, man, did you see that, that carpenter's son? Did you hear the things that he said? The rabbis have been teaching this for years, but, but I didn't get it. It didn't make sense. But he's got authority. When he teaches, there's something different. Because he wrote the book. And then they see the miracles. Did you see what Jesus did? That, that guy that was oppressed by a demon? Jesus just spoke to it. Told it to get lost. And that demon did. And the guy all of a sudden is in his right mind. I've never seen anything like this before. Man, Peter's mother-in-law? She was, she was in danger with that fever. She was, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, go away, fever. And she has no lasting effects. She gets up and gets to work. And did you see when they brought all those people and he just kept healing? And just being there, the demons are running. They're in the presence of Jesus. And just because he's there, they start coming out of people. Amazing. Now, Jesus is continuing. Luke is not, uh, he's not trying to establish a chronological timeline per se uh, that uh, is not really his focus. But as he is um, moving along here, we come to this place in Luke chapter 5. By the way, if you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have a Bible of your own, that's easy to read. You're going to want one because this is a Bible teaching church. We don't believe that the pastor has some great wisdom. We believe that the word of God is sufficient. And so when we get a hold of God's word rather than a human opinion, then we've got a hold of something worth getting a hold of. So you're going to want to have a Bible. If you don't have one, raise your hand. Mr. Todd will make sure that you've got one. Because uh, you want to be able to see this for yourself. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5, which is about four-fifths of the way through your Bible. In the New Testament, you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts and Romans. So in that neighborhood, you should be able to find one of those books. We're in Luke chapter 5. And we're picking up with verse 12. You can follow along with me. While Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Let me just stop for a moment. Okay, covered with leprosy. You may have seen a lot of these uh, plaque psoriasis commercials on television, and, and they talk in there about how embarrassing it is, and oh man, I, you know, I, I don't like people to see me, I gotta wear long sleeves. Okay, this guy is covered, and when it says covered, it means covered with leprosy, which could be any number of a variety of skin diseases that affected people visibly in all likelihood. And I believe that, that this is speaking to leprosy proper. So there is a lot that could be in here. But what we know for sure is that as a man covered in leprosy, he was considered to be unclean. Described so by the word of God, treated that way by society. So he's an outcast. I'll get to that a little bit more later, but I just want to make sure that we're following. A man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him. 
he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, if I were you, I would underline this next verse. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Don't miss that verse. Jesus has all the power of the universe, and yet he still prioritizes time alone with God. You and I are limited. We don't have, we don't have the, the discipline, the strength, the power. We're not God. We can't afford to just keep plowing through life, trying to buck up and be strong and be, be orderly. That's not enough. Because all of the doing of life, if we get everything right, but we're not intimately linked with God himself, we've missed everything. It's not about performance. It's about a person. We need to be desiring and delighting in him. Continuing in verse 17, we see one day as he was teaching, so it's not necessarily that these are back-to-back, but Luke sees fit to, to collect these things together. There are three vignettes that we're going to see, and he puts them together on purpose. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. So picture this in your mind. Jesus is teaching as he has been. Word is getting out. He's well known now. The crowds are coming. And Luke specifies here, there have probably always been these religious leaders around when Jesus is, is teaching. But now he specifies that they've come from all around, from the region of Galilee, if that were you know, considered like a county. Okay, so then Judea, which is a little bit uh, bigger and it's a little bit farther to the south, and from the city of Jerusalem, they're coming. Because they've heard. But you can tell from what's happening here, they're not coming because they are, are excited and want to repent and give themselves to the Lord. They believe that they are already tracking with God. They believe that they've got it nailed down. They've got their lives together. It's the rest of these people that need to get themselves straightened out. And they hear about Jesus and they're coming to check him out, basically to see if he fits something that they can endorse or if it's something they got to shut down. My take on this is that they haven't really decided yet. I think they're deciding. They have a cynical eye and they're deciding now. I could be wrong. That's me. Now that doesn't tell us that explicitly. But it seems to be that they're coming. They've heard. Maybe they're a little jealous. Maybe they're a little concerned. But perhaps they haven't figured it out yet. They will. And it won't go well. One day as he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. 
and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. I take that to mean that that wasn't always the case, that God didn't always intend for him to heal the sick. But in this case, uh, the father had said it's time for the son to be healing the sick, and he's doing that here. Verse 18, some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat or a stretcher and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. That's what everybody's doing, right? They're coming. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on this mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Just let your mind go there for a minute. What does that look like? We're, we're sitting here having church and, you know, and all of a sudden somebody comes through the ceiling. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Man? And what if it rains? What are, what are you going to do here? They're desperate to get their friend to Jesus. They can't get there. They get there. Verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, hmm, that brings a question to mind. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I don't care how strong a teacher they say this guy is. I don't care what miracles he does. He's calling himself God. Because he thinks that he has the right to forgive sin. He doesn't have that right. Jesus, in verse 22, knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. Give me your opinion here, leadership people. What do you think? Well, from your perspective, what do you think is easier? For me to tell this person that their sins are forgiven, or this guy who can't move, who can't function, to tell him to get up. But, just so you get this, verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home doing what? What was he doing? Praising God. By the way, every time Jesus does something miraculous, that's the intent and the result. He's not putting up signs, come to my big revival meeting. He's not trying to gain a following. He's not saying, put your hands on the radio, send in your money to me. He's not saying any of that stuff. The purpose of the miracles that Jesus performed was always to authenticate the message, to connect people with God, and to draw attention and glory to the Father. That's what we see here. He goes home and he's praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. So we've got two scenarios so far. We've got a, a leper who normally can't be around anybody would be shouting, unclean, unclean, so everybody stays away from him. We've got a paralytic who can't even help himself. He can't get there. He can't, can't drag himself out to get the help that he needs. His friends can't get him there either because he's... You know, I'm sure trying to get somebody there on a stretcher slows you down. Crowds are already there. He's you know, one of the last ones to get there. They, they find a way. They're so determined, they won't be stopped, and they get him to Jesus. This is huge. 
But there's a third healing that takes place that might seem a little odd to you. It doesn't feel like the, the others. It doesn't have this physical miracle. And yet, it seems pretty clear by the verse that Luke uses at the end to summarize it, what Jesus says, that he intends these three things to be seen as one point. We want to know what Luke's point is. Let's see, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. How many of you guys like tax collectors? You, you like paying the taxes? It's not the same thing as here. It's not just people are upset because it's April 15th and I don't really want to mail that check in. It's not that. Tax collectors were seen in Israel as traitors to the nation of Israel. Levi is a Jewish man. That's why he's named Levi. It's a Jewish name. So Levi is a Jewish man who works for the Romans. I don't know if we're quite picking up on this. They hated the Romans, okay? So for, for these Jewish people, that, you know, that's just a horrible thing. So when I say he worked for the Romans, you should have an appropriate response for that, I think, right? So let's see if we get an appropriate response. He was a Jewish man who worked for the Romans. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a little bit more. So when they see this tax collector, not only is he a traitor to Israel, but it was, so, it was like axiomatic. It was, it was a well-known truth that the tax collectors made their money by collecting more than the taxes that were due and pocketing the difference, right? So they're getting rich off of their Jewish brethren. Nobody really likes that in a person. In case you're wondering, that's not a way to win friends and influence people. So they hate the tax collectors. They are on par. They're seen like prostitutes. They're prostituting themselves for the Romans. They're seen like thieves. They're stealing money from their, uh, from their brethren. They are seen as traitors. They're betraying the nation of Israel. They are hated. So when you see tax collect collector in these texts, you got to get a picture of the bad outcast people. The sinners who are not to be forgiven. That's the picture. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Strange. We saw that with the fishermen, but they had a miraculous catch of fish. Levi, in all likelihood, because Jesus is who he is and everybody's talking about him, Levi lives in this area, works in this area. He's probably, he's definitely heard about Jesus. He's probably heard Jesus directly. He's probably actually heard his teachings. And yet here he is, still doing what he's doing at his tax booth. Jesus calls him, and now it clicks, and he gets up, and he goes. Verse 29, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his home, and a large crowd of, maybe we should have the same response as the Romans, of tax collectors, and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged, uh, who belonged to their sects 
uh, com complained to his disciples. There were a variety of sects among the religious leaders, various divisions who held to different beliefs and doctrines. They argued about some different things. The Pharisees, they were the, the pure ones. They were the ones who were trying to bring revival. They were bothered by the fact that, uh, that over the last several centuries, uh, the Jewish state and the culture had become greatly secularized. The Sadducees were a little more of the secular uh, type folks, and they were, uh, they were really happy to acquiesce to Roman demands. They wanted to keep the Romans happy. The Pharisees were pretty good with keeping the Romans happy if the Romans stayed out of our business. What we have to do is be spiritually pure. They wanted to protect the doctrine and practice of Judaism. They wanted to promote the, the purity of the nation and to cause a revival. So at this time, as we're reading this, you might be used to hearing Pharisee in a negative term, but it's not yet. That's not how they're seen. They're the good people. They're the people that go to church every week, that pay their tithe every week, that, that give to the poor, that sing in the choir that volunteer at the food pantry. They're the people who are doing all of these nice things. And they're not mixing around with the, the people who aren't. If you're from the wrong side of the tracks, you need to become like us. But here they are gathered together. Levi, this great sinner, gathers together a large crowd of great sinners Verse 30, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. <laughs> what? Uh, what? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This statement by Jesus draws all three of these vignettes together to bring Luke's point out. This is what Luke wants us to see. This is going to be the theme that he develops throughout the gospel as he moves toward that culmination in the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. The, the one place that every human can hang their hat if they will simply receive the gift and trust him. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how far gone you are. It doesn't matter if everybody thinks you're a loser. It doesn't matter if you're too weak to fix yourself. This is our core reality. Jesus does the unthinkable to rescue the irredeemable. Say that with me if you would. Jesus does the unthinkable to rescue the irredeemable. Jesus' love reaches into the lives of outcasts and wretches in order to save those who need saving. No shame, no weakness, no sin can stop the good news of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. That's what Luke wants us to get out of this. This is how it fits into the grand narrative. The big picture story... This little picture that we see today in three scenes is telling us Jesus will stop at nothing to share the love of God, the good news that you can be saved if you will simply turn from your way to God's way and accept the Son. He is going to every length 
And there's nobody who's too far gone. There's nobody who's too bad, too wicked, too untouchable, too unfixable, too unreachable for Jesus Christ to reach in and say, you're mine. That's the message Luke wants us to get. Let's move through it. As we talk about that first vignette, back up if you would to the beginning as we talked about the man with leprosy. Someone with leprosy is dying a slow and miserable death in the Old Testament. It was an incurable disease. It was primarily a nerve disease. So as the, uh, as the nerve damage is affecting your body, you end up uh, losing function. The skin turns white. The, the cells begin to degrade. The flesh begins to sometimes peel away. And it's very visible. And it is very, very unsightly. Very often, because of the nerve damage, you would lose digits from your hands and feet because you can't feel the damage that's being done. There was no medicine for it. Now, this had a particular social impact among Romans and Greeks and other, if I could say, civilized folks. They're fancy. They were outcasts because you don't want to spread the disease. And it's gross. Uh, let's just be very blunt. You know, very often when people see something that is shocking to their sensibilities, they want to turn away quickly. I met a man who had had part of his, uh, his face uh, rotted away by cancer. And it was not something you see every day. It looked like something from, from a movie. And it was hard. I, listen, I'm not going to be dishonest about this. It was hard to look him in the eye. That's not normal for us. We, we shy away from things that, that we consider to be disgusting or abnormal. Some of you have felt like that. You felt like a freak in life. You felt like, like you don't belong. Like people look at you weird. And it's a terrible place to be. For a leper in New Testament times or Old Testament times at this point still, as we see these things happening in their lives, as horrible as the physical malady is, the emotional, psychological aspect has to be even worse. You're untouchable. Nobody wants to be around you or to look at you. And as you get to this place, you see Jesus who has been healing everybody. And you know that he can. You've seen it. You know that he can heal you. The question is, will he? And you throw aside protocol, and rather than shouting unclean and run away, you're so desperate to have everything change that you come to him and you beg and you plead, Jesus, please, if you're willing, you can take this from me. I don't have to live like this anymore. Who knows how long this individual had been living in this state? It may have been months, years. Maybe it had only been weeks, but he's covered with it, so in all likelihood, it's been a long time. Nothing matters more to him than getting to Jesus. Here's what we see here. Jesus touches the untouchable. Jesus touches the untouchable. When 
this man comes to Jesus and he begs for his mercy, begs for him to be clean. The first thing Jesus does, and mark that in your minds, it's important, it's significant. that This is, this is the first thing. So he reaches out and he touches this leprous man. He's a social pariah. Nobody wants to even come close. They might catch, they might catch it in the air. Don't, don't breathe on me. Don't, don't look at me. Jesus reaches out and touches him before he heals him. Now, if you think about it, it would be kind of easy for him to touch him after he heals him, wouldn't it? Because all the disease is gone. He's clean. Jesus doesn't wait until he's clean. He touches him while he's still leprous. This man has probably not been touched in, in his memory. For as long as he's had this disease, he had no physical touch. He didn't even have proximity except to other lepers. And Jesus touches him. And after touching him, says... I'm willing. Be clean. He heals his heart as he heals his body. This man is bearing the marks of a disease that represents in Israel sin. Leprosy was uh, any uh, skin disease and, and such things were, uh, were a picture of sin and uncleanness and impurity. Very often, uh, as we tend to do now, religious type folks would get that confused and we see that throughout the New Testament, similar content, that it's not just that it's a picture of sin as a whole, but they would see it as a picture of this person's sin. He has leprosy because he has sinned. He has leprosy because we've all sinned and sin exists. But Jesus says, you are more important to me than that. And he touches the untouchable. We see something else in the second vignette. This paralytic man can't function. Now maybe you in your life can identify with this. Maybe you've been at a place where you just felt so broken, so flawed, so weak and helpless that you just couldn't function in life. Probably no one here has dealt with that in paralysis, but maybe you felt that way in depression or guilt and shame Maybe you've felt like, you know, you've been able to get that picture of hopelessness in a physical ailment that you can't fix. My father came to that point when he received uh, the diagnosis of cancer the, the second time and, and then after the treatments uh, had no real effect. It was very clear what was going to happen to him physically. And there is a hopelessness that goes along with that. Praise God, he knew a hope that was greater than physical life. Amen. And this paralytic person who can't even wash themselves or take care of their basic physical needs wants to be healed. But I have to imagine, like a lot of us, when you've been so help helpless for so long, eventually you give up hope of ever being fixed, of ever having this taken away. I've seen Jesus do it, but... I can't even get up to him. I, I've been trying so long. I, I've had such hope for so long. Forget about it. 
I'm just going to have to live out the rest of my days this way. I'm unfixable. There's a hopelessness and a despair. It's significant that it says, Jesus saw their faith and says to him, your sins are forgiven. Whose faith did he see? Now that may include the man's faith plus his friends, but it seems that the emphasis is on their faith. The friend's faith is how I would understand that. In all likelihood, it's not this man's faith that is bringing about the change. Sometimes we need others to have faith for us because we're just so ready to give up that we can't even reach out to get the help ourselves. We're paralyzed. Uh, what is happening here? Oh, my goodness gracious. So that apparently means my timer went off. As, as we see... As we see this paralyzed man, very often you and I can be paralyzed by guilt and shame and things that cause us to feel hopeless and give up. But Jesus, you can write this down, fixes the unfixable. He touches the untouchable and he fixes the unfixable. When you feel so far gone that nothing can rescue you, I will never be free of this. I've had this thought pattern my whole life. I've had this addictive behavior so long. This stronghold has roots that are so deep that I've, and I've tried and I've repented and I've failed and I've repented and I've failed. and I, I, I give up. This is why God has given us a family, a church, to stand up for one another, to pray for one another when you don't know how to pray for yourself. And Jesus comes and he sees their faith he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. You know, they didn't come for the guy's sins to get forgiven, right? They came to get their friend healed. That's what everybody's doing. So their motives were probably not overly spiritual. They wanted to get this fixed, to get their best life now. And to do this, they had to get to Jesus. When they get to Jesus, he sees not the paralysis, that's low grade for him. He's already been doing the healing. But he sees a man like all of us here who needs a relationship with God. And the paralysis of his heart needs to be healed. And Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. This sets the leaders off, of course. He says, all right, all right, all right. Let me show you. You think the, you know, that's such a big deal. Okay, you're healed. Just to make sure that everybody gets it, I am God. I do have authority to do this. Stand aside. Jesus fixes the unfixable. There is no part of your life that is too far gone for him to get a hold of. There is no spot in you that is too stained for him to say, nope, I'm going to fix that. There is no stronghold in your life. There's no relationship that is too far. There is no corpse too dead for our God to resurrect. Jesus fixes the unfixable. In this last scene of Levi, also known as Matthew, the tax collector, Levi, who is the son of Alphaeus, has been hearing this message. Jesus has been preaching from the get-go, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He's seen it. 
He knows it. You can't escape it at this time in the region. It, you know, it's, it's like on Super Bowl Sunday, saying, what's the Super Bowl? I never heard of it, you know. It doesn't matter if you like football or not. It's spectacle, so everybody talks about it. It's there. It's all over the place. Jesus is an inescapable uh, juggernaut of, of fame and momentum right now. He knows the message. But notice that Levi has not repented. The message is repent. He's heard it. He's still living the life he's been living. He's living the tax collector life, not the thug life, but not far from it. He's living this life that nobody respects, but many do fear. He is still in his sin, and he hasn't come and said, Jesus, I turn from my sin. Please forgive me. And Jesus doesn't wait. He says, follow me. And all of a sudden, in this direct contact, we see Levi, who has up until now been unrepentant, completely change his direction. And he gets up, and he leaves his tax-collecting booth behind, and he follows Jesus. Now, think about this for a moment. What do you suppose a tax-collecting booth would be full of? Money. He's leaving his wealth behind. He's leaving his, his everything that, as far as he had seen life before. Riches mattered. His career path mattered. And he walks away from all of that to follow this carpenter who knows an awful lot about catching fish. This rabbi who does more than just talk, but he touches lepers. He forgives sins and he heals paralytics. And Levi, who could not be reached before, is now reached by Jesus. That's what we want to see here, is that Jesus reaches the unreachable. Jesus reaches the unreachable. There are no outsiders here. The reality is all of us are outsiders to a relationship with God because of our sin. But none of us are outsiders to the love of God. He loved us so much that he gave his son to save us. There is a powerful reality in that there is not one person ever created whose sin is so great, whose heart is so hard that Jesus Christ cannot say, you're mine. Now, we can't come to him with a hard heart. Levi couldn't stay at that tax collector's booth and follow him. You can't do both. You can do one or the other. But as hard-hearted as he was up until this moment, as unreachable as he was in his sin, as convinced as he was of his own rightness, Jesus says, follow me. You know what? I'm done. I don't need any of it. I'm going to, I'm going to follow this man. And I'm going to give up everything to do it. So as he does, as he moves in this direction, it required now the unrepentant sinner repenting. The one who was following his own way, his own understanding, turning from everything he knew to give it up and follow Jesus. I wonder if it isn't strongly related to the fact that he's watched Jesus touch the untouchable. 
that he's watched him fix the unfixable. And now Jesus reaches out to the one that nobody else would even consider. Now, you don't have to answer this aloud. But how many times in your life have you thought, well, that person's never going to come to Jesus? That person, they're too hard-hearted, they're never going to repent. Shame on us, because that's normal. We do think that. We can pretend we don't, but we do. Jesus says there's nobody that's unreachable. You don't know when God's going to grab a hold of that heart. How many of you have felt for yourself that you're unreachable? I've done too much. One of my grandfather's one of my grandfather's having heard the gospel of Jesus Christ having recognized that he was created for a relationship with God and his sin had separated him from that and that Jesus died for his sin, he believed it. But he couldn't receive it and accept it because he believed that he had done too much and the grace of God couldn't possibly be that big. I pray that in the moments before he died by himself that he received that gospel. But up until that time, he, he couldn't. He believed he was unreachable. Luke wants us to know that no one is untouchable to Christ. No one is unfixable to Christ. No one is unreachable to Christ. And he does unthinkable things that nobody would ever do so that he could save us who are unsavable, irredeemable. We have nothing to offer. God doesn't save you because you're better than other people. In fact, according to everything we see in Scripture, from the beginning to the end, with Israel to the, to the very end of the New Testament, the better you think you are, the more you think you have your life together, the less likely it is that you even know Him. Jesus says, uh, hey, religious person, I don't know who you are. I've never known you. Depart from me. Now, don't get me wrong. When we come to Christ, he does the cleaning up in us. And there's a whole lot of change that happens when we turn from our way to his way. But it doesn't happen all at once for us. We stumble and we fall. We are never beyond his reach. Why does it matter? Why does it matter to Israel? Why does it matter to us? It matters because these people needed to know that Jesus was not coming for those who are well-to-do. He was not coming for those who already had everything figured out. Jesus was coming for anyone who would receive it. But to receive help from the doctor, you've got to admit and recognize that you're sick. If you don't believe that you're sick and you don't go to the doctor, then you can't get the medicine. Jesus came for all who want to be healed and are willing to admit, I can't do this. I got nothing to offer you. Save me. That's the heart of the gospel. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's all of us sick people 
sick in the heart, sick in the head. We get fixated on physical things. And there's nothing wrong with that because for as long as we're still here on this planet, we're stuck in these physical bodies. As Neil Anderson says, this temporary earth suit, this, this rental that we're in. So yes, God cares about your physical needs, but that's all going to go away. We're all going to die. Then what? This heart of the gospel impacts how we walk. Because when I begin to realize that I'm not an outsider to his love, when I begin to realize that this great God who is so far beyond everything, I only exist because he allows me to. I have no leg to stand on before him. God is holy and I'm anything but. And I, I'm not saying this generally. I'm talking about me, the guy standing up on the stage preaching the word of God, having some title of pastor, and I can't stand before a holy God. I'm not good enough. And neither are you. And none of us will ever be. We are irredeemable. But Jesus doesn't care. He does the unthinkable thing and he touches my leprosy and he heals your paralysis and he forgives our sin and he pulls us out of our sinful ways. I got to tell you, if there was any way I could blow this, I would. If there's any way that I could continue in my way, I would. But because Jesus says, follow me and he draws us to himself, he does all the doing that can never be done. All we have to do is accept it. And follow. It doesn't do any good to pray some sinner's prayer with your lips if you're not going to get up out of that tax collector's booth and follow him. He will never be Lord where he, he will never be Savior where he's not Lord. That's crucial for us to recognize. But there is nobody beyond his saving. Because that's true for any of us who have received the grace of God, if you know him then you need to be the one who touches the leper. You need to be the one who does all you can to never give up on a lost cause. You need to be the one to say, I will serve your needs ahead of my own. We cannot claim that we know him if we don't love our fellow man. If we're not willing to put ourselves on the line to say, there's no untouchable to me. And if I suffer in the process, more's the glory to God. He suffered for me. How can I do less for others? It impacts the way we walk when we begin to realize that all of our flaws, all of our weaknesses, all of our shame and brokenness is truly and profoundly and eternally irrelevant when we fall on our faces before the one who saves us, who touches us. Let's pray together.
Father, how could we ever thank you enough for sending your son who does the unthinkable for us who are irredeemable. Lord, help us to touch lepers, to eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, to carry our friends who are hurting and broken when they need faith that they don't have on their own. Help us to have faith for them. And Father, help us to be vulnerable, to allow our friends to have faith for us when we cannot. Sometimes that's the hardest place. Father, we worship you because you are great and you are mighty. And we love you because you are good and you first loved us. Thank you that there are no outsiders to your love and that in the midst of our dust and filth and wretchedness you make beautiful things out of those who will turn to you help us to embrace, embrace your saving loving touch we pray this in Jesus name